Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our public conversations and how we can engage better across our differences. In this episode, you'll hear me talking with Nick Payne. Nick is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter. His plays Constellations and If There Is, I Haven't Found It Yet have been performed to acclaim in London and New York. His series Wanderlust was recently screened on BBC One and Netflix. We spoke about why publicly funded arts are sacred to him, the difficulty of writing about religious belief as an agnostic, and why he thinks the theatre is vital for creating space for us to reflect on what kind of society we want to be. I hope you enjoy listening. Nick, I'm going to start with the big meaty question. You have had warning. It is difficult. I do feel mean, but I think even if we can't come to a clear answer, the process of reflecting on it is quite helpful. So as you've been thinking about it, do you have a clue or a hunch about what might be your sacred values or your sacred value? Sort of is the honest answer. And I think obviously I've listened to lots of these podcasts and lots of people gave really specific answers. And I think my answer starts really broadly And then maybe I'll attempt to unpack it in a bid to get to something a bit more specific. But I was trying to think of a thing. What do I hold sacred in that I would really uh, fight for? I don't mean physically. I mean, I guess in a sort of political sense. And and the obvious one is like public funding. And obviously I largely worked in the theatre, which is largely publicly funded, or at least the bit I've worked in, the subsidised bit. And then I was thinking, well, is that too general? What am I saying? I believe in publicly funded culture as well as publicly funded institutions. And then I was trying to think, well, within that, I think probably the thing I believe in, if that's the right word, is a space that is, I guess, civic, a civic space. Is that the term that gets used? A space for people to tell a story of any kind that they wish. And so I suppose then you get into issues of free speech and then I slightly ran out of steam and that was about as far as I could get. Uh, So I wonder if that's probably too vague. It's not too vague. There, there is no right or wrong answer to this. And actually I think that's, that's particularly what you said about civic space Mm. and shared space, really. One of the things we circle around a lot on the podcast is our common life. Do Uh we, do we have one anymore? What does Uh it look like? Where, is it yeah physically um and what is it that you think about that public funding does that other forms of funding perhaps don't do that enriches those public conversations those public spaces i suppose this is theoretically and there's questions around where the public funding is doing this or has always been doing this or can do this but i think theoretically it's about saying this is something that we should be you know, philosophically, it sort of goes beyond, and this is also where I guess it gets problematic, it goes beyond the issue of money. Like, I believe that we should all be invested in culture and obviously specifically within the arts and that they are important in some way that I probably can't really articulate and important because the telling of stories or the retelling of stories or the writing of myths is really important and the things we end up believing in will obviously kind of shape us. And if a particular kind of narrative or a particular kind of story ends up too dominant, then I think that's problematic. And I guess that's why I think publicly funded or kind of publicly owned, for want of a better word, buildings in particular, I think where you get people in a room 
having to wrestle with a story. And I don't mean having to wrestle with the kind of plot of a story, but I guess in that kind of like Greek theatre tradition or something where you're going, how do we let this happen? And why is this happening? So as I say, not a kind of basic watching for plot type thing, but all of us like morally, ethically or philosophically grappling with how we let certain things happen. And I suppose I think that happens or can happen or should happen really efficiently and effectively in kind of publicly subsidised buildings because that's where you're allowed to take risk because the financial element theoretically of that subsidy reduces your need to make any money. So the people writing these things or making these things can write about and ask any kind of questions they want. And so I, I do feel that is sacred and that if, for instance, it, we had a system like the US where they don't really have, I think, public funding for the arts, it puts a pressure on art artists and on those things that essentially forces them to be commercial, even when they sort of call themselves not-for-profit. And I do, yeah, I, I, and, and I'm extremely glad of the sort of way it works here, even for all its failings and for all its problems, somewhere in me, I think I really believe it's deeply important. Yeah. I believe there is a national endowment for the arts in the US, and I only know that because of an episode of The West Wing. Uh So it it (laughs) might just not exist anymore or never have existed. (laughs) I really need to not use it as like my reliable source on US political history. No, it is most people's reference for how politics work. I just remember an impassioned speech from Toby about it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Why do you think that stories in particular, that non-fiction uh, in in literary terms mm. or um, non-primarily fact-driven mm-hmm, mm-hmm. forms of expression are mm-hmm. useful for us in ref- reflecting both as individuals and as a nation. And you've, you've talked really interesting about why do we allow these things to happen? So there's something mm-hmm. there about what do we think a good life is? Mm-hmm. What are the kind of values that we want to live by? Yeah. While I believe, say, journalism or news reporting or even people sharing stories via Twitter is obviously also really important. I guess my instinct is there's a there's potentially a time pressure on that stuff. And in a way, I, although I don't really know enough about these things, it feels like the interconnectedness of social media has just amplified that time pressure. And actually a, a journalist's ability to reflect over a longer period of time, uh, maybe it was never like this, maybe it is still the same, I don't know, but my impression is that's become really compressed. So I think the news is having to do something really distinct. And I, so I guess I think the place fiction has is that it can ask entirely different questions over uh, g- giving the author or the authors a much longer period of time to kind of chew or stew on these things. And then also, I mean, the other word you used, imagination, like I, I, I just think there's something to be said for the imagination in a way I can't, again, I'm not sure I could entirely articulate it. Um, in that I think, obviously, I mean, there's a quote that I can never remember. I think it's an Einstein quote, or at least it's attributed to him. And I just, I almost feel like it probably wasn't, but... Almost it, every quote on the internet yeah, is Einstein. Yeah, it sort right? of ends up being Einstein. But it was, it's something like, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. I sort of think that's kind of true. And I think in terms of art being able to wrestle with kind of bigger questions 
because it might have a longer period of time than maybe a journalist can do or a set of journalists can do. There's something around the idea of empathy, asking a group of people to experience a particular point of view or try and inhabit it or live in it that I think is distinct from nonfiction. Again, in ways I don't quite know how to articulate, I think that's incredibly important. And I would probably say that particularly in the realm of as the kind of digital world creeps into our lives more and more, and not that I'm anti that, but I also don't think it would be accurate to deny it's happening, that, you know, you can get access to all sorts of things on your phone 24 hours a day. You know, I think a space where you're asked to think or engage imaginatively and kind of empathetically in a different way to maybe you that's distinct from any way you engage with anything else in any other bit of your life is really important. Let's wind back a bit. I try, I'm going to try and be disciplined because there's about four different directions I want to take that, but I want to go back to your childhood because one of the things we try and do is to give people a sense of what, where people have come from, uh, what they've been formed by, perhaps one of the influences on them ending up with the sacred values that they have and the roles that they play in the public conversation. So talk to me a bit about your childhood and if there are any religious or political or philosophical ideas that were in the air that have shaped you. Tell mm. us about those two. I am an only child and I was brought up in a village in Hertfordshire, which is sort of just outside London. And my mum was a teacher, a state teacher, which no doubt influenced my views on public funding and so on. She did that her whole life. She's only just retired. And my dad, uh, who died around 2010, so when I was in my sort of early 20s, he, he also ha- held various kind of public sector jobs, but he, he was a quantity surveyor or a sort of... Um, so the, the job he was doing when he died, he was working for Enfield Council and a large bit of the job, weirdly, was, was sort of organising the repair of like school and hospital roofs. So it was that kind of thing. So I think I had a creeping sense from them. I mean, in truth, I don't really know where they stood politically. So I don't know that I could... We, 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 we didn't necessarily discuss politics with a capital P, like at home or anything. But one thing that I think did influence me, I think in ways I can't really explain probably, is that they travelled a lot when they were in their 20s. And they were the first people in either of their families to do that. They were both from... So my dad was from Luton and my mum was from a little uh, village in Wales. And none of their family really travelled much. I don't think still have really. But my mum and dad met in Luton and just decided to leave. And they kind of travelled all over the world with no with no real sense of why they were doing it or what they were doing. And I don't really, you know, and they went to Trinidad and Tobago and I think they went to Zimbabwe and they had no real idea. I don't really think they had a political understanding of these places or what they were doing there. So somehow that got into my head. And then, I don't know, I mean, they were both into the arts. Like my mum painted and my dad was a musician, but they were hobbyists. They never, they didn't think they could do it as a career. They were much more... Uh, focused on the, you know, it wasn't a job that they thought they could have. So when did it, the idea that storytelling might be something that you could do for a career start crystallising? And when did your love of it become evident? It was quite late, really. It's weird. I mean, I remember going to the to see a play but as a kid, but it would be like a panto at like Watford Palace or Milton Keynes or Stevenage. I've got memories of going to those places. But no, it was much, much later. It was when I, really when I got to university, um... And it was mostly through reading plays that I got interested in writing plays. 
and then it was the thing of putting a play on was really fun. So doing it with a group of people, putting it on in front of a group of people and realising that you could change it, that it was like a living, breathing thing. You know, unlike a film, which in essence, when you go to the cinema, uh, much as I love film and TV, they don't really need you to be there. There's sort of, you know, tree falls in the wood or whatever, like they're, they're exactly the same. But a play, if you've ever seen a play without an audience, I mean, it's an awful experience. You know, it, it, the it, bodies are needed in the room to make it work. So I think that's the bit I got hooked on. And then I just really naively pursued it for years and just sent out plays, but I had no idea how it all worked really. Yeah. And you write about big ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't found it yet on climate uh-huh. change, constellations about quantum physics, wanderlust about monogamy. Um, why do you think you keep coming back to these incredibly big meaty subjects? Mm-hmm. Everything starts with a big idea or it mostly starts from a fear I have or a question I have. So if there is, which was sort of broadly speaking, inspired by like a couple of books I read about uh, oncoming environmental catastrophe, I just noticed that both of those books are dedicated to the author's children. And that obviously seems pretty obvious, but at the time I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if you, if you really understand and you really come to believe that you feel the world is heading a certain way, how do you, how do you live with having children? Do you, would you not be inclined to convince yourself that in fact you shouldn't? Because they're, if, if you, you know, with the amount of knowledge, say, a climate scientist has and you know where the world is heading, you know, that you'll as a parent say, you'll be dead, but your kid will inherit that world. And arguably it will be too late for them to do anything about it. So in a way, often the bigger idea leads me to a sort of smaller personal idea. And so I, I, I end up focusing on the smaller bit of it. Um, but no, they tend to believe, begin with a big idea. I mean, I don't, there's a quote I sort of read, again, which I'm going to terribly misquote, but I can't even remember the book. <laughs> I think it's Peter Atkins. Oh, I'm getting that right. Maybe someone like that. Uh, a physicist who said a thing about, you know, we're meaning seeking creatures in a meaningless universe. And whether or not I believe that, I certainly find that a really interesting place to start a play from, which is that I don't really know what you do with the information that if, if you believe this, the sort of scientific reductionist argument of like, we're a meaningless blip here by chance. I'm like, well, that's great, but I've still got to live a life. And so I, I need something more than that to get through my days. And so I, and I think, and I think in a way like theatre or art more generally is also a search for meaning. And I, and I don't think even if we are meaningless, that the search for meaning is meaningless. I think the I, I, I increasingly feel the search is like part of my job in a way is to ask the question but I got but I never have an answer but it's to try and like ask the question as articulately articulately as you can that's really helpful because I wanted to ask how much you see what you do as sort of partly vocation or Mm. everyone that I'm speaking to on the podcast has some contribution in our public conversations are Mm -hmm. putting something out into Mm -hmm. the world beyond themselves Mm -hmm. And given that we all think that the state of our public conversations is pretty challenging, Mm -hmm. wanting all of us to be reflecting on the role that we play and are we actually a force for good? Mm. Um, So you you try and crystallise the questions in Mm. these plays and presumably you're doing quite a lot of 
non-fiction research mm-hmm. around something yeah. like climate change or yeah. um or quantum physics yeah. what do you think happens in the process of t- of turning it into a story and embedding it in characters does it mm. help what does that add to the way we're wrestling with these things because in a way i'm not necessarily a playwright who writes sort of politically with a capital p in that like there's a tradition in say british theater of like a kind of david hare esque figure who writes his, his his plays i would say are sort of party political you're in no doubt when you leave where he stands on the issue this particular play is exploring. And I suppose I sometimes, that isn't necessarily the thing I want to leave an audience with, because I, I suppose I think that's something you, you could say through journalism or you could say through nonfiction. So I think the challenge is when you find a realm or a territory or an idea that you're interested in is to figure out how you, in a way, make it human or, so, or something like that. And sometimes you, I, I figured that out and sometimes you haven't and you sort of abandon it and a bit of material sits in a drawer because you think, well, I could say this in two sentences, but what makes it a play? What makes it a deeper thing? So really in something like Constellations, which maybe superficially feels like it's about, and it is, I'm not suggesting it isn't, but is about multiverses or physics or I think it's really about death, you know. Um, <laughs> as is probably everything. Similarly with Wanderlust, I mean, you know, you don't put it on the poster, but it feels like it's about monogamy or lust or desire or how you keep all those things alive. But um, again, through the research, you know, the main character in that is a psychotherapist and I don't know anything about psychotherapy. I've never had therapy, although I'm really tempted now. (laughs) And so I went and met lots of psychotherapists and obviously you can't help but read your Freud and then your Freud leads you to everything's about your death or your (laughs) mum. So I was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can underpin the whole show on this thing that the character doesn't realise is really their problem. You know, that, again, I guess a sort of psychodynamic idea of you never truly know yourself. And I was like, how do you dramatise that? How do you... So that was the attempt. So there's there's often a kind of tension, I suppose, between the nuts and bolts of the plot, which may feel like it's telling you what the piece of work is about, but actually there's always a kind of counter idea, which I think in a way is probably the question that, the work ends up asking, if that makes sense. Yeah, it yeah. really makes sense. What you haven't done is what some artists and writers do, which is put the the work out into the world, the plays or the novels or the films, uh-huh. and also have more of a public persona. So you're not on Twitter, as far as no. I can tell. <laughs> no, I'm In not. fact, I believe you don't even have a smartphone. I do. I do have, sadly, a smartphone of sorts now. But no, for a long time I didn't, and I really and I miss it. I'm trying to figure out how to get rid of it and get back to not having one. Yeah. And is how conscious is that decision to, you you do do interviews when mm-hmm. people like me nag you, yeah. but uh, you haven't felt like you want, as far as I can see, you haven't developed a platform, which is a voice mm. on, this is what I think about Brexit or this is what uh-huh. I think about yeah. politics. How conscious is that? Yeah, it's pretty conscious. I mean, I think in truth, I don't get asked to do that much press, but when I do, I just, sh- you know, inevitably there's a bit of, you want to do it, or at least I think I want to do some of it because you want people to find the work and you think, well, if I don't do this interview, what am I doing? I'm just maybe shooting myself in the foot a bit. So there's a really basic thing, which is like, particularly with a TV show, it's like you want people to watch it. So do the evening standard interview, like go over yourself. But also... Yeah, no, but I, I think the work is the meaning. Like, there's there's not extra meaning that I can add. 
the piece of work is the, you know, it's not, a, again, this is a quote from someone, can't remember who, an artist. Uh, you know, it's not a carrier of meaning. It is the meaning. So me then going around, although I'm contradicting myself because it's just what I did to it to a degree, going around and saying, oh, this is what it really means or this is what you should really take it, take from it. Like, I, I really love the bit where everyone else sort of tells me what it's about and people are always much more eloquent or articulate than you are or what you thought you were trying to explore. And with a play, that's very, like, live and tangible and real. With the TV thing, I found it much harder because it's TV's sort of atomized. I guess. You don't watch it as a collective. So although I'm not on Twitter, I end up going on Twitter just to see what people say, which is probably good and bad. <laughs> when I used to do Thought for the Day, I used to do that afterwards, and uh-huh. it's never a particularly no. good idea. It's fascinating. It's, I've, I've, it's really interesting. And, I, and I'm, I'm sort of weirdly glad I'm doing it, as in looking on Twitter for people's thoughts. But I real, I, it, it just confirms to me why I could never be on Twitter. Because I, I, I think to write, I need space that is like solely for the writing. And I have really noticed that it just alters your habits or your behavior just a little bit, being able to be sort of looped into this huge network like 24 hours a day. So let's talk a little bit more about Wanderlust because it is the most recent thing. And um, I, I, so from my memory, you have done episodes for other TV shows, but this is your first sole written TV show? It is, yeah, yeah. And definitely the most high profile. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. It's on BBC One, so I guess the most mainstream channel and, of course, publicly funded uh, in the in the UK, yeah. Yeah. And you're, you know, sparing your blushes. You're a biggish name in the theatre world, but it's the first time I think perhaps there's been more public awareness mm-hmm. of you as a writer. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to say, and we've talked about this a little bit, that mm-hmm. the preview buzz yeah. was not perhaps what you had hoped it would be. no. No, it was weird. It's the most press I've ever had for anything I've ever done, I think. And it's certainly the most tabloid press I've ever had. The tabloids don't, I've realised uh, through doing Wanderlust, I mean, I don't think, generally speaking, they really engage with theatre. I'm not really sure why. Um, maybe because theatre is so localised in that, you know, you have to go to a specific theatre to see a play. And No, it's it's really, really weird. I mean, I really realised in a way that I think I probably thought, but it's funny when it's your own thing and you see it happening, is that the show was just used as fodder to generate articles. And and I'm not even saying that's bad, but nor do I think I can pretend that isn't the reality. Like, they're not really... Lots of the pre-publicity stuff, I don't really think it was... As I was saying, like, these big questions it might be asking or engaging with the issues, you know, they were just like, sex on the BBC, and that was the level of the discourse. And... I found that really sort of depressing. Right, right, like I wish the experience had been the opposite. And I thought this, as you say, like it's the biggest thing I've ever done. It's going to have the most exposure ever, could potentially reach the most people. I can't wait to see what people think. And I was like, oh, I see, of course. They don't, that kind of press ultimately don't really think anything. In a way, it's about driving traffic through a website. So no, it was really weird. And, and uh, yeah, I, I worry it gave completely the wrong impression of the show and it put people off. And interestingly, the show's just gone on this, not that this is a plug, well, you can't get it here, so it's definitely not a plug, but it's gone on Netflix everywhere else, but it's not on Netflix in the UK. And the response is completely different. Um, No one is really talking about the sex. No one's talking about it being gratuitous or controversial or any of those things. And so I've learned a huge amount about, in a way, the 
where your work exists, the context for it creates the space for the debate and actually being on BBC One, and I, and I honestly didn't really think enough about this, means that you're engaging with a mainstream audience whether you like it or not. And so your show is sort of largely judged by mainstream standards. Um, and I don't even really know what mainstream means. I don't really know what high art means or low, you know, I, 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 I dislike those divisions. I don't, I don't believe that a certain kind of art is more or less difficult than another kind of art. I think that's a dead, a sort of deadly nonsense. And yet there I was sort of going like, Oh, I see the show is being perceived in a, within a really particular context in a way we're on like a Netflix, it's comparatively tame. So then people really go, okay, what is this? Weirdly, they did the opposite. They went, I get what this is meant to superficially be about, but what's it really about? Whereas here, the discourse was largely, what's this superficially about? Let's make a story about what it's superficially about. Yeah. So it was weird. And um, has it put you off? How do you feel about that? Uh, change of medium, change of audience, mm. change of um, gear. Has it mm. put you off trying to be in that space? Do, is, does, do you long for that more intimate, more local mm. theatre space where things are worked, ideas can be worked out in subtler mm. and fuller ways? Or does it make you go, ah, I'm going to try that again yes. and see if I can get them next time? It's sort of a mix of both. You think like, oh, if you could fit, you know, it's a real privilege to have something that could potentially reach a huge audience. And I, I think I do do it because I love the idea of the thing, the work being seen and heard and thought about and talked about. But I must admit, I did miss the kind of collective moment where you sit in a room with a bunch of strangers and you all watch it and you really know whether they're enjoying it or not enjoying it. And you can, and the other nice thing about being relatively anonymous in terms of not doing much press and that stuff is that you can walk around the bar afterwards and you can genuinely eavesdrop on people chatting about your show. Uh, on TV, it's slightly weird. It just goes on telly and then you have no idea, really. And then, yeah, Twitter or Google are your only ways of finding out. I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's weird. It's made me really think about where in that way that I was saying, I don't really like, like where does my work sit in terms of mainstream or niche or, and much as I want to believe those things shouldn't matter that, you know, the BBC doesn't have to have everything be for everyone, but it has to have something for everyone. The expectation is on BBC one that everything should be for everyone, which I think is, is impossible. I don't, I wouldn't even. So in that sense, Anyway, yeah, it's made me think about that. But no, it hasn't put me off. And how much do you feel a responsibility for, I guess, the vision of what life is or what human beings are like? Mm. That's a, not mm -hmm. a very well-formed question, but Sally Phillips was on the podcast mm, and she, yeah, yeah, yeah. she talked about not wanting to play roles that had absolutely nothing, no redemption in them. Yeah. Um, in, in the story. Yeah, yeah. And particularly the kind of what, what, what are human lives like and, you know, not wanting to just reinforce stereotypes about immigrants, for yeah. example. Yeah. Um, but I know some artists feel like actually thinking about the moral purpose of the stories that they're telling is distracting mm. and can mm -hmm. get didactic and mm -hmm. really you're just kind of holding up a mirror and asking questions. Mm -hmm. So where do you sit on that? Actually, mm -hmm. I have a moral purpose because I'm going to shape people's world mm -hmm. versus I just need to tell some stories and let them make their own meaning of them. I guess there's a sort of two categories of a kind of, 
art or artist that goes, I'm reflecting the world as it is. I'm going to reflect the truth and the reality of it. And therefore, if I'm giving you horror, uh, I don't mean the genre, but the sort of, say, a violence or sexual violence, I'm not going to kind of tone it down in order to... And then there's, I guess, there's this is crude, but there's another character category maybe which is sort of reflecting the world as you wish it was i think i'm probably the latter um i don't really quite get the mirror argument because i think i have a mirror it's called life i could just go outside and see that and it was i suppose in the case of sex for instance in wanderlust people have sex there are sex scenes it was completely conscious that there's no nudity and that the sex shouldn't be although maybe I'm contradicting myself, shouldn't be the kind of beautifully lit sort of airbrush type sex scenes you normally see that they should be doing character and that, for instance, people should use condoms. Mm. So I suppose in a weird way I am going, that's real life and we never see that and we should see it. But for instance, the press weirdly commented on the lack of nudity as if there's kind of one way to stage or dramatise a sex scene. But there's a there's a really weird thing going back to a value system, I suppose, or something you hold sacred, is that I know that if an actor or actress in a show is asked to get naked, that that image will appear online, um, probably somewhere, particularly if they have a certain profile, and that that image will be decontextualised and it might live on the internet forever without anyone's control and certainly without anyone's permission. And obviously I know that because I've been lucky enough to work with lots and lots of actors over the years and actresses in particular have talked about that and have said like it's really weird and while you can create a kind of incredibly safe thorough and sort of producing working atmosphere on set you then the image is not in your control so I, I and maybe it's prudish maybe it's not my place to make these decisions but I, I, I just I'm not really comfortable with being a part of authoring like fodder for basically a kind of weird sub category of online porn. So I, it was very deliberate that that should not be in the show. Um, anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but so, so there's a sort of a weird thing where actually your work ethic or something intercepts with, you know, obviously I'm aware that when people have sex, they're going to get undressed and there's going to be nudity involved, but I didn't feel entirely comfortable putting that on screen because I know, and it was proven the daily mail like screen grabbed lots of our stuff. And I know that if anyone had been naked, they'd have used those images. Um, Which is sort of funny given that the, particularly the mail, but others did make an enormous fuss about it being highly sexed uh, as a show. Yeah. Just because sex seems occur. Yeah. But they, that did create a sense of them people writing about it when they'd actually seen it with a sense of slight dismay and confusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was fascinating. They were screen grabbing images that were not sexualized and trying to sexualize them. So taking an image of someone in a kind of, uh, so I think there's a scene of Toni Collette in kind of new underwear she's bought to try and, uh, as she says, like inject a bit of energy into her sex life with her husband. And, and, we, again, very consciously choosing the kind of publicity stills did not choose those stills because we were like, that's all anyone's going to pick up. And then, of course, it gets screen grabbed and then it goes everywhere. And no, it was really, it was fascinating and sort of depressing. And 
amusing to see them trying to condemn us for being sexually explicit and yet not being able to use our imagery in line with their argument. It was, it was, a, I was like, wow, that's such a, it's so interesting that rather than accept there's nothing sexually explicit in the show, you decide that you're going to try and make, in a way, pretty banal imagery <laughs> sexually explicit condemning us for it while also creating a kind of headline or a feeling for an article that says, come here for something saucy. You know, it's, it's the massive contradiction of like a hyper-sexualized society that's ashamed of sex. Um, and these, you know, articles around this show, which thankfully are, you know, they're not really doing anyone largely any harm. So it's not, in the end, it's not that big a deal, but it did feel like it revealed a bigger culture. And and also partly what the show was trying to grapple with, which is kind of about communication and how do you talk about these things? And rather than feeling shame or embarrassment over a set of needs you have that you don't feel you can articulate, what happens when you try and be honest? And it was really interesting to see the response was one of like dishonesty in a way. Like it was weird, yeah. Um, let's briefly, in a lovely segue from sex to religion, uh, <laughs> to, to just talk a little bit about um, faith in the public conversation because uh, a, a reasonable segment, although far from all of our listeners, are probably coming from a faith perspective. Mm. And one of the things we're interested in is how do we have those conversations across divides of belief and non-belief mm. better? Mm. Um it feels like the very shrill new, new atheist moment and the kind of corresponding religious kickback has calmed down a bit, but mm. there's a sort of slight uneasy truce. Mm. Um, and obviously with what's going on in America and more broadly geopolitical, still a, a lot of toxicity in the air. So um, my impression from having known you for a few years is yeah. that there's there was no kind of religious background in your childhood. and Well, I, I went to a C of E primary school but in truth, in that awful way, my memory of it and my sort of feeling of the experience at the time is I don't think I really understood or had enough context on the beliefs that theoretically underpinned that school. I had a sense that like at a certain time of year, you'd take tinned food to church and you'd sing hymns. <laughs> but in truth, I, I don't think I left primary school thinking oh, I understand the say core beliefs of Christianity and I feel capable of making a decision whether I do or don't believe them. And so I think, I, I, you know, I would say I'm agnostic. I don't, yeah, I, I agree about the sort of atheist, the, what the kind of God delusion-y sort of that whole bit of atheism. That, and it seems to me that that, that mode of thought was sort of anti-science in a weird way, or, or there was just something very strange about it. I just, I couldn't quite get my head around it. Um, and I think even in science, there's a need for belief. I mean, you're really telling me that in the kind of far reaches of theoretical physics that you don't want to believe that string theory is, a, you know what I mean? I, I just... It's fascinating talking about the multiverse, which you obviously spent a lot uh -huh. of time in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. constellations. And yeah. we've had a guy called Tom Chivers on who uh -huh. I've had lots of um, very cheerful conversations with him about yeah. the fact that we disagree on the multiverse because he, it seems to me that there there are complexities and I got, you know, I feel so out of my depth talking about this from, but from my very limited understanding, yeah, that there yeah, are complexities yeah. about the beginning of time and yeah. things that are very hard to explain. And the two 
best options we have are some kind of creator or the multiverse. Yeah. And I feel like (laughs) neither of those are like without the need for a leap of faith. Uh, And therefore can't we go like, okay, faith all round. (laughs) We'll all take our best guess and work out what is the thing that then helps us live rich and meaningful lives where we love each other better and we ascribe more dignity to human beings. Yeah. But it was interesting that you, you've said in another interview that all of the cosmologists that you talked to were atheists. Yeah, largely, yeah, they were all largely atheists, and it's—I'm sure, obviously, there are there must be lots of scientists from all the disciplines who have religious beliefs. But yeah, I, in truth, I don't think I've met one, mm. and there's no doubt that some of the people I met see it as not just like another point of view; they see it as sort of counterintuitive or a threat to their own ideas in a way that I guess because I'm neither I'm obviously neither a scientist and nor am I particularly religious I'm I'm interested in them all as going back to this thing of like meaningless but seeking meaning like I in my limited knowledge of both faith and science they I'm sure both religious individuals and scientists will hate me for saying this but I think there is something analogous in the need for one or the other or the search for something. It's funny, but I know, on the public discourse thing, I don't really know. I mean, it does feel like it's a moment where any kind of discourse is hard and fraught and people, and we're sort of forced to be drawn into binaries really quickly. And I think that's, I just, yeah, that's not how it, you know, which is maybe why the thing, again, of fiction, I feel like, but of course I would say this, fiction has a role which is, Ideally, I guess, is not binary. It's not saying or it's not asking you to believe this or believe that, you know. It's ask it's the question, not the answer. And but in journalism or in kind of debating or in political life, you know, it feels like we're being drawn into a set of binaries and, and then within that more binaries are created, like hard Brexit, soft Brexit, medium sized I, I just to the point where like language is being eroded and becomes meaningless. You're making me think of Ecclesiastes, but I am uh-huh. I'm not going to quote. No, please. Uh, the, um, there's a particular book of the Bible that uh-huh. I think you'd like. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, I, uh, I want to finish with the question that I ask a lot of people, which is um, really about what, what, what might help us, what might help us have better public conversations. So um, you can answer generally. In fact, I'd mm-hmm. like you to. Um, mm-hmm. And then if there's anything particular for religious people listening that um, you'd like to reflect back or that they could do better, or you really wish they'd stop doing, um, that's mm. really helpful as well as a kind of learning exercise. Wow. Empathy, as distinct from sympathy, I think is one of the most important things. It's fine that I don't share someone's point of view, but to either deny them the right to it or to be unwilling to empathise with it, I think is a grave error. Again, I guess I feel like fiction is an amazing way of asking people to empathise with a point of view or a question or a set of beliefs that they might not ordinarily be wrestling with. And it's why it's important that the arts reflect the sort of makeup of the country so that we're not hearing the same myths or seeing the same stories in the way that arguably we do in non-fiction or in politics, possibly. Yeah, how you improve that, I wish I knew. I don't really. 
And now, I, I, in, and, and what was the second bit of the is question? Is there anything is, in terms of the particular belief, non-belief thing? As you're, you know, you're interested in big ideas, mm. it feels to me like from where I stand, this particular religious tradition of Christianity has this yeah. richness yeah. and complexity and depth and power. But then a lot of the, my friends and people I know mm. who are interested in ideas, it feels like for them it's often do- that doesn't connect. That's not necessarily mm-hmm. what they see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess I'm just interested if, if there are blockages or um, conceptions of what religious is, relig- religion is and the way religious people engage that are unhelpful for you that might um, that we could learn from. Well, I don't think this is an example of something that's unhelpful and maybe this is a silly thing to say, but I think from a fiction point of view, I think faith is incredibly hard to write, is to, to dramatise, because I guess in my really limited understanding, it's potentially one version of faith is a largely internal process um, and it might be sort of solitary or it might, or not solitary, but it, but it's, yeah, it's going on in your head for want of a better phrase. And that's just, that's just nuts and bolts. That's hard to dramatise. You know, you want, characters to be doing things to other people and acting out on their impulses. And so I think I've wanted for a while because of all the science plays I've done to try and to do the opposite and to go, right, how do you dramatize faith? How do you dramatize belief or religion? But I, I, and and maybe it's because I'm, I, I don't sort of have a first person experience. I found it quite hard to even like find the story because I don't want to do the sort of traditional agnostic playwright narrative that you might end up with where it's like loss of faith or crisis of faith. You know what I mean? That, that to me seems to diminish the idea of faith. I I'd rather again in the, like invest in the point of view wholeheartedly. I'd rather try and find a way of dramatizing faith, but I haven't really um, probably because I don't entirely understand it and it will take a while to really figure it out. Um, I mean, the nearest I got to going, Oh wow. I really get that again. I'm going to, badly misquote something, was in a Richard Holloway book. Leaving Alexandria, would that be right? Yeah, do you know what I mean? And he said, faith is the opposite of certainty or something like that. If I had certainty, I wouldn't need faith. Faith is about doubt. And and I was like, okay, I can, I really get that. I, I get it. That makes a lot of sense to me. But again, I still, for the life of me, can't figure out how you make that actionable and how you dramatize it. Yeah, I feel um, like I often think about that there was a kind of, you had sort of a Dostoevsky moment and then you kind of had Graham Greene mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then between then and now you've mainly had Marilyn Robinson mm-hmm, and yeah, actually yeah. the skill level required yeah. to write about faith in ways that take it seriously yeah. is, is yeah. Yeah, it's few and yeah. far between. And yeah. I do think that's part of why Christians, I don't, don't really buy into that, Definitely not the persecution narrative, and I have questions about the marginalisation narrative. Mm. But there is a sense in which even I feel like this enormous part of my life, mm. my internal world, mm. it's just not it's not, it's visible. not reflected. Yeah, you, you you have like dot cotton, uh-huh. and then ISIS, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. you know, like <laughs> <laughs> don't get them mixed up. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I think you've put your finger on something really powerful mm. there, which is part of the, the misunderstandings come from the, the just the sheer difficulty yeah. of something that is ineffable. I'll send you a, p- a great piece that mm. Nick Spencer did on, called Quantum Theology about mm. similarities between the, the language games required by quantum physicists mm. 
to um, create analogies for what is happening. Yes, in yes, physics completely. That are yeah. not, they're not yeah. what's really happening and they yeah. need to be close enough. But then once you've got a word, people think that's what's really happening. Yeah. And that's exactly what of many of us feel like happens with God. Mm. We get words that are a, a, a gesture towards, a yeah. guess towards yeah. the divine and this yeah. incredibly powerful and personal source of love. Yeah. But the skeleton form that was supposed to be a box for meaning becomes yeah. what people just take away the box yeah. and then whack other people with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating. Yeah. So I do think that that is, yeah, that's really helped crystallize something for me that actually, if I can help in any way for uh-huh. you to write a great play about religion, uh-huh. that yeah, would yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll introduce you to some people who've converted halfway through their lives because that's always a fascinating thing. Yeah, right, right. Some of them right. through science, which yeah, is always yeah. interesting. Anyway, Nick, that has been a really rich and wonderful conversation. And thank you for talking to me today. Thanks, thanks. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk. 